have the pleasure of introducing our guest speaker for the morning, um, Pastor Ryan Cagno. Um, Ryan is a licensed BIC pastor. Most recently, he was serving at um, Encounter Church in Palmyra. Um, he's been attending with his wife, Ashley, and daughter, Naomi, since May of this year. Um, and so we are just delighted to be able to hear from him this morning. Let's welcome him. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, we've been attending uh, as much as we can since the uh, beginning of May. We've been doing our very best to sit in the back and be unnoticed by everyone as much as possible. So appreciate your discretion in that and allowing us to just hide for a bit. Um, it's been a real pleasure to uh, worship with y'all um, during this time, and it's been really welcome. My family's in a season of transition and change and um, coming out of ministry, doing different things. I've been driving a truck for three months. It's just been a wild time. Um, and in that, you guys have all been a, a big blessing to us, whether you were conscious of that in, in offering welcome or not. So just thank you all very much. And it's a privilege to be able to come and speak with you this morning as well. It's a privilege to be outside. Amen. Amen. Isn't this great? Shouldn't there always be a bunch of like trees in view as we're worshiping God and, and, and hearing his word? Uh, I love it. Uh, we're going to continue uh, the series that you guys have been in, the church uh, then and now. A few weeks ago, you guys uh, talked about Philip the Evangelist uh, and, and his work with uh, Simon the Sorcerer and, and things that happened then. And we're going to pick up Philip's story today in Acts chapter 8. Um, when we last left off with Philip, he was in Samaria. So he was uh, preaching the gospel to the Samaritans uh, in that community. Um, we're going to be in Acts chapter 8 starting at verse 26. I'm going to go past what's printed in uh, the sheet there. So if you have Bibles with you or on your phone, Acts 8, 26 through to the end of the chapter. Uh, but that'll get you most of the way. So uh, I'm going to start off reading that passage and then we'll go from there. So Philip is preaching in Samaria. It says, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And the eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. It said, he was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. And the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. 
Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. Would you bow your heads in prayer with me? Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that, that your Holy Spirit would enliven and quicken the words of scripture in our hearts. I pray that I would get out of the way um, so that we all could hear you clearly and directly and be changed. I pray for your spirit to move in this place this morning. Amen. This is a very uh, interesting story, and there are a ton of different things that we could uh, unpack here. I'm going to walk back through this story again for us. And, and as I do that, I want to put one question before you to think about as you're listening to this story. Who is the main character of this story? That's the question I want you to think about. Who's the protagonist? Who's moving the action forward here? So first, the story begins, Philip's in Samaria, and, and the angel of the Lord gives him this word recorded by Luke as, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Um, elsewhere in the New Testament, this phrase, go south, is also translated sometimes as at noon. So, so imagine being Philip. You are in this fruitful ministry in Samaria. Your cultural enemies, these kind of religious cousins that you've been estranged from for hundreds of years, they are finally coming into the fold. They are finally receiving the gospel. Philip is at the front lines reaping the harvest of this ministry, and he gets a word from the Lord saying, yeah, man, uh, time to head south on the desert road in the middle of the day in the heat. I don't need to tell you like how hot it would have been in this time, right? Not the word you'd want to hear. It's a strange thing to say, uh, but, but Philip goes and does it. He's probably thinking, okay, Lord, fine. Uh, I don't know who in their right minds would be traveling on the road this time of day, but that's where I'll go. Um, but of course, there was someone traveling on the road. So Philip on the way runs into someone who is described as an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, or the Candace, right? It was a, Candace is like an official title, so it's kind of like Caesar, or the Caesar, right? Uh, he served the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So early church tradition has called this man Simeon, and I'm going to call him Simeon going forward, because I just don't want to repeat the Ethiopian eunuch over and over, and like, the dude deserves a name, right? Amen? So he's Simeon. Um, that being said, I do want to unpack for a minute those two identities that are attached to Simeon, because they are going to be really significant for our story. Uh, first, Simeon was an Ethiopian, so country to the south of Egypt. Um, in the ancient Greco-Roman imagination, Ethiopia was like, this was the farthermost reaches of the known civilized world, you know, just as far away as they, you know, could imagine. It was a place that in their mind would have evoked a lot of um, mystery, a lot of, a lot of respect for this kingdom and, and what they experienced down there. Um, so it's cool to see that as, as the book of Acts goes on, right, um, Jesus, when he left, the disciples gave this commission of, uh, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So Philip just came from Samaria, and now he is, he is encountering this man on the road who is going back to, in their minds, the ends of the earth, right? So Philip is well on his way to filling out his entire evangelistic bingo card right here. Amen? He's doing it. So Simeon was an Ethiopian. He was also a eunuch. A eunuch was a man who had been uh, castrated, <laughs> rendered unable to father children of his own, right? Um, this could have happened for a variety of reasons in that culture. In this man's case, 
Um, whatever the reason he had been made a eunuch, he was now serving in the royal court, right? Um, the significance of this was, you know, eunuchs could be allowed special access and proximity to power that others couldn't have, right? Um, at the risk of being too candid on this, like, he could be left alone with the queen and you didn't have to worry about the royal bloodlines being sullied, right? Got it? We're all on the same page. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so this eunuch, you know, kind of shared this interesting dual status where on one hand, uh, a eunuch would have had lower social status, uh, would have been, um, you know, stigmatized in a lot of ways, certainly in Roman and Jewish culture, maybe in Ethiopian culture as well. So that was, on the one hand, he had this lower status. On the other hand, this dude is advisor to the queen, right? He's on the inside of these halls of power. And we're told that in this passage. He was in charge of the whole treasury of the Candace, right? This is a man of means. This is a man who is, is being driven in a chariot um, through, through the desert back home. And, and from the story, we can tell that this probably is more of like a wagon. Like when we say chariot, this is a significant thing, right? He's got drivers. He's got servants himself that are attending him. Um, he has a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and these things weren't just like, you couldn't go to Second and Charles and get like a scroll of the prophet Isaiah in that time, right? These were like, this guy was a man of means and wealth and power. Um, so yeah, that's who he was. He was also a devout worshiper of the God of Israel in some sense, right? Doesn't spell it out explicitly whether or not he was, but it seems like he was a convert to Judaism in some capacity. So he had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on the way home, he was doing some extra scripture reading. And I'm sure y'all at Harrisburg BIC, that's what you're gonna do on the way home, right? You're gonna crack open your Bibles on that drive and get a little more in before lunch, amen? That's what I'm told. I'm told y'all are the most spiritual people on the block, so. Am I saying y'all too much? Does that translate? I, I, I don't know when and where I picked that up, but it's helpful, you know? I need a second person plural. Um, at any rate. So he is reading uh, along the road on the way home, and Philip encounters Simeon on the road per the direction of the angel of the Lord. And then we read in verse 29, it says, The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stand near it. So for a second time, we have divine agency pushing Philip along. First, it's like, be on this road at this time. Then we can imagine Philip kind of like hanging back awkwardly, like, oh, there's a rich, important person, like, I'm going to keep my distance. And, and the, the Holy Spirit says, no, nah, man, like the Holy Spirit's not afraid of some awkward. So he just says, go just kind of lurk. Just go walk beside that chariot for a little bit and hover. It's not weird at all. It's fine. So Philip is, is lurking and he overhears Simeon reading from Isaiah. And, and Philip asks him, do you understand what you're reading? To which Simeon responds, how can I? Unless someone explains it to me. So he invites Philip up into the chariot. He shows him the passage that he's reading from. It's Isaiah 53, right? And he asks Philip point blank, who is this passage about? And this here again is the providence of God, right? So God directed Philip to encounter this man at just this right time in the desert to where he's reading Isaiah 53, the passage about the suffering servant. This is like one of the passages in the Old Testament that pointed ahead to Jesus, right? It was one of the key like messianic prophecies that foretold Jesus's coming. So this is, this is God's providence at work. And this is what we call in the evangelism game, like this is a softball, right? This isn't even a softball. This is a, this is a tee ball. This is set up for him, you know? 
I mean, someone who sincerely wants to know and follow God. He's reading scripture about Jesus. He invites you up into his chariot and starts peppering you with questions about this man, Jesus. Can you, I mean, it does not get any easier than that. Amen? If evangelism was that easy, I'd be sharing Jesus a lot more than I do. So, Philip climbs up into his wagon and starts answering his questions. He shares with Simeon, starting from Isaiah 53, the good news of Jesus. And as they are traveling along, they come to this pool of water. Another, I think, strange coincidence or providence of God. You know, we're emphasizing this desert place, this wilderness place. But, oh, there just happens to be a big pool of water big enough for two guys to get down in and be baptized. And, and Simeon, you know, again initiates and says, why shouldn't I be baptized? This awesome rhetorical question. What is stopping me? And I, I want to pause on that because I just, I love the way that that is phrased. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Who says that I can't? Why not me, right? And the implication in that question is that there would have been some question. There would have been some kind of sideways glance. So like, I don't know, like, this guy's a eunuch. He's like from this faraway place, like being baptized in the name of Jesus. I'm not sure. Simeon had just come from worshiping in Jerusalem, as I said, worshiping the God of Israel at the temple. And the way they set up the temple was there was an inner court where the Jewish people could come and worship, and there was an outer court where the Gentiles were allowed to come and worship, right? So Simeon, as he came from worshiping, he would have at best been in that outer court of Gentiles worshiping, at best. Maybe not even there. There's law in the Old Testament in Deuteronomy 23 that uh, specifies that eunuchs were not to be included in the assembly for worship in any capacity. They were, uh, you know, a uh, Stigmatized in that way. They were considered ritually unclean. So Simeon departs from, from Jerusalem with this sincere love for God, searching the scriptures with this fresh memory of having been literally marginalized, literally kept at the margins, kept at arm's length in God's temple. And so with all that as a backdrop, with all that in his mind, we can hear afresh this jubilant rhetorical question, why shouldn't I be baptized? Who's holding me back from this? If this Jesus is who you say he is, then no one can hold me at arm's length from this. Amen? And fittingly, the question goes unanswered. Why shouldn't I be baptized? Who says no? No one says no. And they go down in the water and they are baptized. And then Philip is immediately and suddenly teleported away from the scene by the Spirit of the Lord. There's a lot of weird stuff in the Bible. There's a lot of weird stuff in Acts. I think being beamed up like Star Trek is maybe one of the, it's at the top of the list. I mean, the dude literally disappe just disappears and shows up somewhere down the road, right? It's a strange thing. It's a fun book. And there's so, there's so much that we can highlight. There's so much I wish I could highlight from this story. But I want to return to that question that I asked before we walked through that, which was, who's the main character of this story? Who is the protagonist? Who drives the action forward? If you read it in a Bible or looked at it on your Bible app, it probably said something like uh, the story was titled uh, Philip and the Ethiopian Eunuch or something to that effect, right? Uh, that's, that's what the story is called. In my NIV, it's Philip and the Eunuch. Um, fun fact, those subtitles are not in the original languages. Those are not God's inspired word. Those are added by translators as just a helpful thing for us to know where we're at in the Bible. 
So we can just kind of kick that to the side, right? And, and challenge it and say like, okay, we're subtitling this Philip and the eunuch, but is this story really about Philip? Is Philip really the main character? Think about what happens in this story, right? Philip is minding his own business in Samaria and he is told to go down this road. He goes down this road, he is told again, hey, lurk by that wagon. The one thing that Philip does, well, one of the only things Philip does in the story is he says, do you understand what you're reading? But then after being initiated by God into this encounter, then Simeon himself kind of takes the reins, right? He says, you know, come up, come up into the wagon. He's peppering him with questions. He's handing him these softballs. And then they keep going down the road. And it's not Philip that says, hey, you should be baptized. Simeon's like, hey, like I should be baptized, right? And Philip, true to form, is like, yeah, sure, man. I, I guess so. Sure. Yeah. Well, I guess we can baptize you. And then fittingly to his brand, then Philip just kind of gets, gets beamed up, right? Gets zapped away at the end of this thing. I mean, Philip doesn't do a lot. He doesn't drive this story forward a lot. I think it would be better maybe to flip it and call it, you know, the Ethiopian eunuch featuring Philip, right? Um, but I think we could do even better than that. Because I think it would be better still to acknowledge what I think this story tries to make clear, what I think the book of Acts tries to make clear, which is that God is the main character of this story. Amen? God working in this, he works in a variety of different ways. He works in this story. He works through the angel of the Lord. He works through what is called the Holy Spirit and then the spirit of the Lord. He works through the providence of that passage being read at that specific time. God in a variety of ways in this story, he is the primary mover. He downright holds Philip's hand Philip's hand through this process, right? It is God's story. It is about him. It is driven by him. And it amounts to his glory in the end. The book of the Bible that we're reading from Acts is uh, shorthand for Acts of the Apostles, right? But it could be just as easily uh, called Acts of the Holy Spirit. Because as you trace through this story, it is God, the initiator throughout, it is God pushing it forward. My favorite example of this is in Acts chapter 10, which I think is going to be preached on in the next couple of weeks here. And this is when Peter is preaching the gospel to Cornelius and his family. And this is traditionally marked as the moment when the gospel officially goes out to the Gentiles. Although I think the story we're reading today might have something to say about that. It's fitting that God was like, even before the official begin, God had little side projects he was doing here on the road in the desert, right? But anyway, um, so Peter is preaching this gospel to the Gentiles and they're receiving it. It's this huge moment in the biblical story where finally all these other sheep are going to be being brought into the fold. And I love this. It says it in verse 44 of chapter 10. It says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came, came upon all who heard the message. I love that so much. And I think it's so telling. While he was still speaking, the Holy Spirit just fell. God was just like, I'm going to let you finish, but like, boom, this is happening now. The Holy Spirit is falling now. You know, Peter, nice speech, nice sermon, whatever. Like, you get the sense in that story and throughout that the disciples are just like trying to keep up with the movement of God and the movement of God's spirit throughout the story. You have people receiving the spirit mid-sermon like that. And Peter's like, okay, well, I, I, I guess we need to baptize them then. You get Christians, you get stories of Christians sprouting up in Samaria and Antioch and Corinth and these different places. And it's just like, okay, well, then I guess we better send Peter and John up there to like sort it out and give it some structure, right? Consistently, the, the, the disciples are responding. They are following. They are trying to keep up with what God is doing. You see that in our story as well. 
See, God was already there with Simeon when Philip showed up, right? God was already doing something when Philip showed up. Philip didn't come to Simeon bringing the gospel along with him necessarily. I mean, he does. He brings that message, but it is only joining the Spirit's work already in that chariot. The Spirit enlivening the heart of Simeon. The Spirit organizing this as only God could. God is the main character of this story. And I think when we begin to recognize that, we can hear a foundational truth for us this morning, which is that even as we are a church that prays and heals and shares and evangelizes and all the things that we talked about in this series, we are a church that follows. We are a church whose fundamental posture and orientation is to, is to try to keep up with the movement of God in the world. And that is good news for us for at least two reasons that I want to unpack real briefly. First, because God has the power to do what we couldn't. And God has the love to do what we wouldn't. And you know that's true and profound because it rhymes. Amen? Right? First, God has the power to do what we couldn't. Only the power of God, only the power of God could take this small group of disciples huddled in this room who had only recently just turned tail and run when Jesus was arrested when things got bad. Only the power of God could take those disciples and unleash them to change the world to the point where here we are sitting today. Only the power of God could cause this gospel, this story of a shamed, failed Messiah who died coming back to life only God, only his power could take that message and spread it to the ends of the earth in a way where it was not hampered by persecution. It was helped by persecution. Amen? Only the power of God could heal the sick, could burst open the prison doors, could turn the church's greatest oppressor into her greatest witness. Only the power of God could move an Ethiopian eunuch named Simeon to be reading that exact passage when Philip came up to him. Only the power of God could... I mean, magically teleport Philip away from the thing when it's over, right? God has the power to do what we couldn't, and God has the love to do what we wouldn't. As I mentioned, Simeon would not have been allowed very far into the temple, right? Perhaps not even into the Gentile court. Maybe as when it says he came from worshiping in Jerusalem, maybe he was just hanging around the outskirts in the courtyards and whatever. To the Jewish mind, to Simeon's own mind maybe, he had been held back from the place of the presence of God, right? That's what the temple was. This is where God is. This is where his presence is. And Simeon had been held back from that, from the presence of God. But in fact, what we find in this story is that the presence of God came out to meet him, amen? Isn't that the story of the book of Acts? Isn't that the story of the gospel? Is, is God coming to us? God finding us in the deserted places. I love that in the midst of, of all these seismic events that are happening in the book of Acts, in the midst of the birth of the church and all these important things happening, we have this small story of God reaching out and finding this one man in the wilderness, in the desert, right? Isn't that so like God? Isn't that so like Jesus? Can't we hear res resonances with John 4 and the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? In the midst of all this fruitful ministry, Jesus finds his way out into the desert in the heat of the day to reach one person. God has the love to do what we wouldn't. And how, how beautiful, as, as Philip encounters this eunuch, he is reading these words. 
In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from him. Simeon is a eunuch, as someone who would not have descendants, who, who, whatever the status he enjoyed, he had suffered an injustice to himself and his body. And he is sitting there reading those words and wondering, who is this man who has suffered humiliation? Who is this man who will never have natural descendants of his own? I would very much like to know who that person was. Not only was he reading a passage that, that, that spoke of Jesus, he was reading a passage that spoke to his specific situation, his lack, his, his hurts. It is a beautiful thing. And maybe, I, I like to imagine that maybe Simeon would have gone on then and read further on in the scroll to Isaiah 56, where God makes this promise. God says, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. This is what the Lord says to them. He says, to them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. How beautiful, how amazing that this is the God that seeks out Simeon. This is the God that sees Simeon on the margins and knows him and goes to him. This God who promises that you who just came from being shut out of the temple walls, you will have a memorial greater than sons and daughters set up within the walls of my temple, within the greater temple that is in heaven. Amen. That is the promise that he makes to Simeon. That is what Simeon was reading and encountering. That is the God that is already at work there when Philip shows up. Praise God. God sends Philip there, and it's fair to assume that Philip wouldn't have gone, on, gone there of his own accord to this desert road in the heat of the day, leaving a fruitful ministry to this foreign person who, according to his religion, Philip, to that point, had been excluded and kept out. Philip wouldn't go to him. But God does. God always goes there, right? God always goes to the places we're uncomfortable with. He always goes to the people that we are uncomfortable with. What we find in Acts is a God who is always out there, right? He is always pushing the margins of mission. And when the disciples come to a place so often, they find him already working. He is the God who goes before us, right? He goes before us against our enemies. He goes before us on the cross. He goes before us as the firstborn from the dead in resurrection. And he goes before us in mission. When Jesus, right before he ascends into heaven and he sends his disciples out in mission, you could read that as he's leaving them to it. He's leaving and it's like, it's your turn. And there is a sense in which the church takes up that call and commission and goes out and brings the gospel. But consistently they find that the spirit, the advocate that Jesus promised was already there and already at work in these communities in ways that they couldn't do, ways that they wouldn't do, ways that they would not anticipate of doing. It wouldn't have occurred to their mind and their fallen human hearts. But God is there already. Amen. And it is the church's task, it is our task to keep up with him. The church follows the work of the spirit in the world. I read a story recently, um, I think it was published maybe two years ago in Christianity Today, of a Brazilian missionary named Braulia. And, and she was a missionary for uh, 30 years. Her very first mission in the 80s was to this isolated tribe called the Palmari. Uh, they lived on a river in Brazil, um, pretty isolated from the outside world. They would have contact with Brazilian merchants that would roll through from time to time. But their experience with these merchants is they would, um, they would extort and exploit them, basically. 
over the period of generations to the point where by the end of it, the way that, that Braulia describes it is the Palmari gained from them only a sense of their own inferiority, of their relative poverty. The Palmari came to hate being Palmari, to look negatively on themselves in this way. So anyways, Braulia and her team of three, they learn the language, they learn the culture, and they get together their funds to, um, to go and minister with the Palmari. They have all their money saved. But as they were preparing to go, <laughs> Braulia uh, thinks she senses a word from the Lord telling her, hey, don't spend your food and supply money yet. All that money you've set aside for this trip, like, don't spend it yet. And she thinks, okay, that's a strange thing for the Lord to tell me, but okay, um, we'll be obedient to that. And sure enough, they go and they go to uh, rent a boat to take them the five days down the river to the Palmari tribe. And the, we, they find that the boat was going to cost exactly the full amount of money that they had saved for this entire trip, right? And they were, they were faced with a choice. We could spend all this money, hire this boat, and arrive five days later at the Palmari with no food, supplies, bedding, nothing. And they are obedient to God, and they follow. And they eventually arrive up on the shore um, of this Palmari village with nothing except the shirts on their back, they make encounter with the villagers, and they issue the customary greetings. Um, and after a few minutes, they share, uh, we are missionaries. This is uh, Brolia's words. We want to help you to know Jesus, the Son of God. And if you want, we can also help to set up a school to teach everyone to read. And this is what Brolia writes, and these are all her words following. She says, the lady looked at me with a puzzled expression and started shouting for her grandson, Danilo. She said, come here, Danilo. The missionaries have arrived take them to their home. Our home, I asked. And the woman pointed to an empty tall hut nearby and she said, Danilo and I built this hut two summers ago, preparing for your arrival. We heard on the radio about the creator God and how his son Jesus wants to help us. And I said to myself, well, if that's true, then he will send us his people. So we built the hut for you. That's crazy, right? The missionaries were housed, they were fed for six months. During that time, they helped to start a school, they helped to start a modest health clinic. They taught many to read and write in their own language. They taught them basic mathematics so they would not be exploited by the merchants that came through. And through them, this is the part that I love, uh, through them, God was able to accomplish something through the missionaries that they wouldn't have anticipated, they couldn't have done, they wouldn't have even thought of, right? Because you see, through this, he caused through the experience with the money for the boat and all that, he caused the missionaries to need to depend on the people that they had gone to serve, which is huge, right? He had brought out this circumstance where they were put in dependence and need to this tribe that hosted them, right? Through that, the Palmari were dignified. They provided for the missionaries who came speaking their language. Eventually, to the great pride of the Palmari people, the, the, their language would be studied and taught in Brazilian universities. The Palmari learned to know Jesus, and they learned to stop hating themselves and their culture. And I think it's a beautiful story that illustrates what we're talking about, because it's a set of circumstances that only God could arrange that. Only God could have put those different pieces into place. Only God would have thought to do it setting up this situation where they needed to depend on the Palmari in a way that would ultimately heal the deeper need there than reading and writing. 
heal them at a, at, a, at, a, at a cultural, historical level that they, you know, only God would have seen and thought to do that. Only God would have communicated to them two years prior to build this residence for them. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Only God would, would send people, go through all of this in the ways that he did it. And we cannot begin to fathom the ways of God in, in, in the world. We could fill libraries with these kinds of stories. And, and it's impossible for us to discern the how of, of, of it and the why of it, how God does what he does, why God does what he does. But we as the church are called to simply, you know, when we recognize it, when we see it, we are called to follow. We are called to join in. We are called to say, I don't understand what you're doing here. I don't understand why you would tell me to, you know, give away all the money when I don't have food to eat. But okay, God. That's our calling as the church, right? God does what we couldn't and he does what we wouldn't. And I want to just leave you with a few practical words as we strive to be a church that follows, a church that, that chases after God in the world in this way. The first thing is simply we need to be listening to God and looking for God. Do you have regular practices of listening? Do you have regular practices of, of seeking God's will, trying to discern the ways he's at work in your life? I'll tell you that 95% of this is just like quieting things down. If you can't go five minutes without turning on the radio or looking at your phone or something, then you're going to have a heck of a time trying to hear God speak to you. I, speak, I say that from experience. So much of it is simply turning down the noise and listening and practicing through prayer, through silence, through just sitting there learning to, to put yourself in a position to hear God's voice. But it's not just, it's not just learning to hear God's direction, hear God's word to you. I, I think we can read a story like this and maybe wrongly assume that God's always going to work this way, that God's always going to communicate his will as clearly as, hey, Philip, go stand by that wagon and lurk, right? Sometimes God gives us those direct commands. Sometimes he does not, right? We are not promised that all the time. Sometimes God speaks through scripture. Sometimes God says, hey, you choose. <laughs> Ryan, I, I trust you to, to make this choice. Sometimes he does give us explicit instructions. So it's not always going to be, God, what would you have us do? When I say listen to him and look for him, what I, what I also mean beyond that is we need to learn to just recognize simply like what the work of the spirit in the world looks like. We need to learn to recognize what a movement of God looks like in our family, in the hearts of, of a friend or a loved one or an enemy or a neighbor. What the movement of God looks like in our community. We need to practice seeing that. We need to pray that the Spirit would enliven us to, to recognize that. That we would be people that could hear the whisper amid the whirlwind. Right? Be able to trace the course and work of the Holy Spirit, which is that wind that blows this way and that, and who can say where it goes. That seems an impossible task, right? If you're at all familiar with the Holy Spirit, you know, like, expect the unexpected, right? But the story tells us that, like, there's no, you know, we need divine, supernatural, enlivened hearts and eyes to be able to recognize that. We need to be praying for that. And then, practically speaking, we just need to have the courage to follow, the courage to be obedient when, when the command does not make any sense. The courage to, if we see God at work in a place that we would rather not go, the courage to join him there. 
when we discern God saying, head out onto the desert road at noon, just go. And here's the comforting thing. He's already there, right? When you go and you're, you're just unsure and you feel like you're stepping out into thin air, know that God is already there at work, amen? When God said, use all your food and supply money on the boat trip to the village, just trust that when you wash up on that shore without a penny to your name, God is gonna provide and God is gonna work through your deprivation to lift up another person, amen? When God calls you out of a job when you've got no prospects for a new one, that's the one that hits home to me. God's, when God's just like, leave. And you're like, cool God, but like, you know, groceries and stuff. And he's like, leave. <laughs> Could I get like one more word? Um, you go, because God's already there. If, God, if following Jesus is, 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 in Paul McCartney's words, a long and winding road, you know that God is at the end of that road, and God is all along that road, and God is faithfully there. And what a comfort to know that that's true of our God. Amen? You know, I try to give you something practical. I try to give you something you can hang your hat on, something you can do. But ultimately, this is not a sermon about what you can do. This is a sermon about praise God, that this is the God that we worship. Amen? That's what this sermon is. At the end of the day, if nothing else, you know, he is who he is, and that is worthy of us gathering and worshiping him and getting excited. We tend to get caught up in our plans. We tend to get caught up in our vision. We look at our community, our life, our workplace, our school cafeteria, and we think, you know, what can I do here? We might even ask that better question, which is, what does God want me to do here? But there's an even better question, which is, what is God already doing here? Lord, give me eyes to see that. That's what this story has to offer us this morning. We so often strive to want to know more of God. We want to know what he would have us be doing. But what if instead we just got our eyes up to see what he is already doing? Because he is doing something. If we would be given eyes to see it, God is doing something around you right now. God is doing something in the life of a family member or a friend or a coworker or whoever it is or in your broader community. God is doing something. He is not idle. He's working. God, give us eyes to see that. We as individuals, we as a church, help us to do what we were created to do, which is to follow you. And would y'all just pray with me? We lay ourselves before your provision. We lay ourselves before your wisdom. You know, we know that if we rely only on our own logic, our own reason to puzzle it out, to try and figure out uh, our way through life to untangle the knots uh, of what's going on around us. If we rely on just our minds for that, we are not going to see the kingdom of God uh, fleshed out around us in the ways that we could. We are not going to see, you know, the movements of your spirit that work in ways that go so far beyond our reason and our logic. So, Lord, we plead with you. We lay ourselves before you and we just ask you would open our eyes, open the eyes of our hearts to see and to know and to recognize your work. I pray that this would embolden us. I pray that this would comfort us to know that you are the God that goes before. We praise you. Give us eyes to see and strength to follow in small ways and big ways. 
crazy guy. Amen. If there are pastors who would like to come up, we can uh, receive those that would need prayer as we continue in worship. I invite you to stand as we sing.
word today, Lord, I do pray that we learn to walk in your spirit, that we learn, Lord, to act as if you are real in everyday life. And we know then that doors will open, eyes will be open, things will happen because you are walking ahead of us. Thank you for the word we've heard today. Lord, take your spirit, take that word and burn it into our hearts. Help us to live out its implications. Bless us as we go now. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.